whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Season 3 of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. So if you're familiar with the hand-finger convention from Philosophy Colloquia, where a hand is a new line of questioning and a finger is a follow-up, I am allowed to use my finger. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Okay, uh, thanks. I'm Bob Stalnecker, and I uh, started doing philosophy about uh, 60 years ago. I mainly work in the philosophy of language, metaphysics and epistemology, some decision theory, game theory. And uh, I started out doing philosophy of history. But one of my teachers in my last year of graduate school was Saul Kripke, and that sort of turned me on to uh, the sort of possible worlds framework that I've been working in ever since. Can I ask, who, who did you work with on the philosophy of history? Who was your teacher at that point? Stuart Hampshire was my uh, advisor, but, uh, you know, we had nice chats about things, but he didn't really give me much help on the dissertation, but... Uh, so Hempel was uh, Peter Hempel was my my second advisor who really gave me a lot of feedback and again his thing, stuff on on um, historical explanation uh, was uh, some of the, one of the things I was responding to. Did you ever talk about your work on the philosophy of history with Kripke? Uh, no, but I did make use of uh, Kripkean ideas ah. in my uh, dissertation. In fact, I was interested in proper names of. Um, Things, you know, events in historical periods like the Renaissance and what is the Renaissance and what, you know, I thought this is like a proper name where you study what is its essence, what is its nature, and uh, made use of some of the some of the Kripkean stuff I was learning from him. And have you ever looked back at your work in the philosophy of history? I mean, do you, do you have a view about about whether it's worth returning to and, and uh, resuscitating? Not really. I mean, one of the things I early on, I mean, I went from there to working in philosophy of social science, and uh, I found myself spending a lot of time criticizing very bad philosophy, the sort of simple-minded positivism, which was philosophically dead but still alive in uh, in the methodology of social science, and I that's just not very interesting. I thought, and and it was the sort of cross-cutting element of philosophy of uh, something was uh, was distracting. I thought, and that's so I, that I wanted to do more sort of pure philosophy. Well, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna end, end this digression into your history with the philosophy of history and go to the the official questions, which are inspired by Iris Murdoch. So she begins the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression. But she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophy? And if so, how? Good. Yeah, I think that's a, a, an insightful point 
she makes, and uh, it's a good thing to reflect on, I think. And I, when I think back on on this, I mean, I, I think I'm a I'm a fatalist uh-huh. of sorts. At an impressionable age, when I was in high school, I off my father's bookshelf, I read lots of American plays, which of the 20th century, and emphasizing. I mean, the, the sort of idea, I mean, the death of a salesman is the paradigm case, but the idea that people have dreams and ideas and ambitions, which you know are never going to be fulfilled, you know, and that, I mean, of mice and men was one of the things I remember vividly from reading at the time. Uh, the, the idea that we, we can't change that much, and often if you try to change things, you bring them about, bring about what you're trying to avoid. And that kind of idea is kind of a way of thinking. And in philosophy, that led me to, I think, to be skeptical. I started, when I started reading philosophy, I thought, you know, metaphysics I found very interesting. But nobody could believe any of that stuff. You know, I mean, that Spinoza and, and Leibniz and Plato and stuff. And, and I thought the idea that the ambition in, in metaphysics is... Uh, I mean, what we do is we construct little models and we can solve little problems and uh, hope we have some kind of overall view. But but don't think, uh, I mean, the kind of analyses people were giving, this can't be right. There's always counterexamples. And so that kind of way of thinking uh, has influenced the way I think about philosophy. And mainly, it's, I mean, I, uh, I reluctantly came around to thinking I've got to do metaphysics, but um, I'm uh, remain uh, and always have been very skeptical of sort of fundamental metaphysics, uh, the the way it's done now, and that's that's uh, something that helped me. I mean, even though I, I think I have a a general worldview, uh, it's it's a, it's a pluralistic and anti-metaphysical in in many ways, and I think that's influenced by the kind of fatalistic attitude. Makes one conservative, you know, conservative in a sense, not in which in politics, what we call conservative nowadays has nothing to do with conservatism, but um, the idea that change is uh, incremental and gradual and there's always going to be injustice in the world and we have to learn to live with it, but do our best to make it a little bit better, that kind of idea. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, the idea that bold views are always subject to counterexamples, I mean, does that mean, does that make you less worried about counterexamples? Or does it make you try to do philosophy in a way that is not sort of vulnerable to counterexamples and as much as as, uh, as one might fear? That's interesting. I mean, I, I, in a way, in a way, I, I guess I try to avoid the counterexamples in, in that I, I'm not worried by the fact that a model that one constructs is highly idealized. But I think ideal models, which have obvious problems, uh, are a good place to start. And then that gives you the problems to then work on. So, I mean, you know, when I'm the, the idea that there's only one necessary proposition, which a stallnecker is a, a roadblock that you uh, can't get around and uh-huh. <laughs> or something like that. And um, it comes from that, uh, that kind of idea. So I, I think... I stick with that idea. That's my stallnecker. Uh, and it, uh, it, I think it gives rise to problems. And if the problems it gives rise to are real ones, 
then it's a good thing that it gives you those those problems. But you're not going to you're not going to you're going to open things up, but you're not going to solve them in the end. That's really interesting. The other thing that's striking about your approach is that there's a certain kind of pragmatism, as it were, a kind of idea that the the models are to be useful, and that that's we're, we're trying to get useful results and useful work done with them. I mean, is pragmatism, sort of American pragmatism, has that been an influence on your work, sort of the, the kind of tradition of Peirce and, and Dewey and others? Yes, I think so. Although I think that, I mean, uh, Carnap and Quine right. uh, are, are a very big influence on the way I think, and, and in the, the kind of pragmatism that they, particularly Quine, of course, which does draw on the, the American pragmatist tradition and combine it with the kind of a European positivist background. I, I think of myself very much as a as a, a pragmatist. So, having talked about your your fatalism and how that influences your philosophy, I'm going to ask you a second question about yourself. Uh-huh. Is there a, a trait that you wish you had more of as a philosopher? Uh, I, when I hear that question, I, I think is there a, is there a intellectual weakness? that I wish I didn't have. And I guess in some ways, my first thought then is, uh, I used to describe myself as terminally naive, uh-huh. being a little bit behind the curve and not picking up on social cues. And, and, so, and so a certain amount of what's going on around me not being aware of. And I it's wrong to say terminally naive because uh, I'm just late, right? I later <laughs> recognize you wouldn't you wouldn't know you were naive if you didn't later recognize the, the cues and what's going on that that, that you missed. But my next thought uh, is, be careful what you wish for, because in some ways, one benefits from a philosopher. I think often benefits from weaknesses, and the fact that you have to sort of reason things out, which other people kind of get intuitively and move on is actually a, a positive thing. And I've found strategically in some ways being naive and missing the petty insults or the uh, certain amount of what's going on, it's best to ignore them. And, and you learn that in that way too. Is there a particular aspect of your work or a kind of an argument or idea you have what, that you think sort of fits that model particularly well of having sort of naively missed something that was obvious or needing to to work through the steps more slowly in a way that led you to to do something interesting? I mean, I think some of my work in in pragmatics may, which is really theory of of conversation. Conversation is a, a place where there's a lot of communication going on beneath the surface. And the study of that is one of the main things I'm uh, I've done in the, in that in that field and been interested in, and I think it may well be that it benefits from the fact that I had to learn how to understand more indirect um, communication. I mean, my favorite philosopher in this whole area, one of the important philosophers of the 20th century, I think, is Paul Grice, and he's someone who who did have a good sense for this, uh, this, this kind of thing. And, and I think I learned a lot from him. 
I, I like that idea of having having a, a reason to make explicit the pragmatic rules that govern all this implicit communication. Yeah, uh, yeah now that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my, one of my undergraduate teachers. This is a kind of a, a half a joke, but he said this is on the question of weaknesses uh, being benefits in philosophy. He said, you know, I have terrible eyesight. And I think that gave me an acute sense of the difference between appearance and reality. <laughs> that may be a philosopher. And, you know, that, that kind of thing. Well, you said at the beginning that, that you've been doing philosophy for 60 years, which makes it especially interesting to ask you the, the next question. Have you changed your mind about anything important in philosophy and if so, how? Okay, good. So I, I have not. I've not been the kind of person who shifted from one extreme to another. I'm not a, the way Russell and Putnam and, and people are famous for and proud of, of of doing. So I've stuck very close to where I was early on. But on one issue, I think I really have changed, and that is, I started out. You know, when I started working in the possible worlds framework and doing analysis of my theory of of counterfactuals and using the Kripkean uh, possible world stuff. And, and, you know, people would say, well, I don't really believe in possible worlds. They don't really exist. And I I thought, that's a stupid thought. I mean, who cares? You know, I mean, and I used to say I was proud of having no ontological conscience. Uh (laughs) But yeah, again, it's partly the pragmatism and the the Carnapian sort uh, sort of attitude. But at a certain point, I came to you. You got to take this stuff seriously, uh, and so uh, you have to say what these things are, and why it's legitimate to make use of this uh, apparatus. And I think that was a uh, a shift uh, in thinking brought on by certain kinds of criticism. First of all, the recognition that David Lewis, I had I had never even dreamed of that idea that possible worlds are real, concrete, parallel universes. I thought that's a, a insane idea, uh, which had never occurred to me that that was the way people were understanding possible worlds. But then I say, well, you have to say, but you, if you have no ontological conscience, how can you object? So I said, no, no, that's not what possible worlds are. So the the ontological questions are questions about what things are, uh, and whether you actually understand what you're talking about when you talk about them. And eventually, I mean, one of the a real change of mind in a more narrow sense uh, was I started out saying, well, possible worlds are more fundamental. Propositions are defined in terms of possible worlds. And I don't think the opposite is true. That is, it's propositions that are more fundamental and the most concrete, the most explicit, uh, the most detailed uh, propositions are the, the ones that decide all the questions of interest. But that's a that's a context-dependent and pragmatic notion. So it's not the very idea that there are these maximal, absolutely metaphysically maximal propositions is something, uh, which is what possible worlds would be, is something I came to be skeptical of. So I, I think one needs to explain how one can talk about merely possible things, even though there are no merely possible things. And that was that was sort of being driven by uh, an ontological skepticism, which I didn't have in the beginning. Well, I'm going to shift to question four, which is about time travel, but not about the paradoxes of time travel, but the question, 
if you could go back in time and meet a past philosopher, who would it be and why? Okay, good. So before I, I get to uh, answering uh, the question, I have to say, as someone who has been thinking about counterfactuals for 60 years, one reflects on exactly what kind of counterfactual possibility is one, is one talking about. What is one getting at when one when, when asks these kinds of counterfactual questions? I want to know, uh, how do I talk to this person? Do they know, do they know what's happened in the meantime? Uh, no, we're going back in time. My first thought to answer the question was one of my favorite uh, philosophers as an undergraduate. Uh, it was a revelation to me. Uh, it was St. Saint, Saint Augustine. We read the Confessions in my first philosophy course. And being a wholly, totally secular person, it was a shock to me to discover there are really people who believe in God, you know, I mean that. Uh, but I did find Christian theology so fascinating uh, for, for its philosophical content. And I had a sense, and of course in the Confessions you get a sense for his personality. And I had a sense he was a, a witty and, and, and sharp-minded person. And I would, I would like to find out about that, what, it was, what he was like as, as a person. But I thought, that's really going back too far. And more, then I started sort of thinking more recent people. And, and a name that occurred to me was Frank Ramsey. Frank Ramsey was one of the great, one of the really uh, brilliant, uh, young, very young philosophers in the, uh, in the early 20th century in England. And, and he died at age 20-something, I think. But not before doing some really important work, but not being having opportunity to develop it in detail. He did work in economics as well as, and he's still regarded as a significant figure in economics and, of course, in decision theory. But uh, he was also was a critic, a very insightful critic of Wittgenstein's Tractatus. And uh, I, I think he, he had influence on Keynes and led him to change his views about things, uh, about probability. And uh, just to get to know, to, to meet him and, and talk to him about philosophy, tell him something about what's happened since, find out what he thinks of it. Uh, and, and it's just, again, one thinks of it's potentialities unfulfilled are sort of a tragic thing uh, in general. And, and I think the philosophers who died before they had the chance to do, their, to do a lot of the work they could have done is uh, uh, one of the things that led me to think of him as someone to, to answer this question. Yeah, that, well, there's so much to say about that. I, I'm, I'm glad you interrogated the question. Obviously, one of the risks of going back in time is that you're then stuck there, and being stuck in you know North Africa 1,800 years ago might be a more with with Saint Augustine might <laughs> might be a more challenging outcome than than yes, Cambridge, right. Cambridge in 1920, which you know would it have its pros and cons. Yeah, no, Ramsey is. is um, I think Sharon Misak also talked about going back and and talking to Ramsey. I mean, it, there's a I mean a sense that there was he was so incredibly rich in ideas and they were just flowing out of him that there must have been it must have been amazing to talk to him. Also that despite being so incredibly fast, people's accounts of him are that he was very kind and easy to talk to about philosophy. I mean, he think he would be a fun person to go back and talk philosophy with too. So I'm going to ask you the final Iris Murdoch question beginning with another quote, 
It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Okay, so my my first thought, I mean, just asking, uh, independent of philosophical uh, concerns, uh, I'm afraid of, uh, I'm, I'm intimidated by authority, and uh, irrationally, I think. And this has always been a problem. The police, the, uh, the doctor, the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, I don't know why I am this way, but it's, uh, it's, it's a fear. But I'm not sure how this affects my philosophy. In the philosophical domain, I, I would say I, I'm afraid of repeating myself saying the obvious, saying what other people have already said, going on too long, you know, and being inauthentic or being, you know, padding your your work and so on. But it also has problems. I mean, I often find that, that what I take to be obvious needs explanation. And uh, it's not just that uh, it needs spelling out, but it, it actually when you wave your hands too much, you you miss things. And I've often been forced, particularly in recent work, technical work, fill in the details. And I thought, well, the details are kind of kind of obvious. Everybody, I'm just using standard methods and all. But then you work it out and you find there are these new problems that arise, things you didn't notice. So I think the fear of wasting people's time saying things that other people have already said uh, is a, a fear that has a, had some negative as well as positive uh, effects. It's interesting that you describe yourself as sort of having had a kind of hand-wavy view and then being pressured to fill in the details. Because something I struggle with is often I, my sense is that the chance of being right about the details when it comes to hard philosophical problems is so small that the, the level at which one's likely to get it right is, if at all, at, at a kind of broad brush, this is roughly the right direction level. And yet it does seem there's a kind of intellectual obligation to make sure it can be worked out in detail. And is that something you, you have a, a, a take on? Yes, I think this is why I, I see, I mean, I think of doing philosophy as as having two different poles. I mean, there, there's there's the big picture. What, what, what motivates you to to be doing what you're doing and on this particular issue. And you want to explain that and, and, and get, get a sense for it, motivate it. And, and, then, and then you construct a model. And then you say the model is when, when you start getting precise. And at that point you say, well, of course, this is all very unrealistic and very idealized. And that's all right. That's the way it should be. And you're hoping to getting at something and so the, the precision is not connected directly to reality, and, and that's okay. It's, it's from moving between those, those two things that I think is, is the way philosophy has to be done. Well, that's great. That sort of brings us back full circle to the relationship between models and counterexamples and your, your pragmatism in philosophy. And so maybe that's a good point at which to end and say, thank you, Bob, for appearing on the podcast. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Bob Stalnaker is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at MIT. He's the author of several books, including Inquiry, Our Knowledge of the Internal World, and Context. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.